So Money episode 51, Helene Olin. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Hey, welcome back to So Money, everyone. How you doing? You know, one of my So Money guests last week, Chris Brogan, astutely noted that there was a direct correlation between being yourself and making money. And I think that is so true, but it does involve taking risks. I mean, thinking outside the box a little bit, being yourself, even if you feel uncomfortable, having the guts to go against the grain, be different and speak your mind, even if your opinion is unpopular. Today's guest is a New York-based journalist who is admired by many for just that, for speaking her mind. Her name is Helene Olin. She is the author of the highly acclaimed book, Pound Foolish, exposing the dark side of the personal finance industry. She wrote the book not knowing how it was going to affect her career when it was published, uh, but she took the risk anyway because, well, she wanted to stay true to herself and be of service to the public. Unfortunately, her fears they did not materialize. Instead, her career took off in ways she never imagined, and she talks about that on the podcast. Three takeaways from our interview. Helene's critical perspective of the financial services industry, why she invests in index funds, and her golden rule of thumb that helps her stay true to herself. You're going to love this interview. Here is Helene Olin. Helene Olin, thanks so much for joining me on So Money. Thank you for having me. You know, I have wanted to speak with you personally, directly, I think ever since I was flipping the channels back in 2013, and I caught your interview on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Let's start with the book a little bit. Just looking at the book online, if you Google it, like you, it's praise upon praise from the New York Times all the way to obviously The Daily Show. Um, so it's no doubt that the book was successful, but I'm curious to also know about what kind of backlash maybe you got from it, especially because you take on some personal finance titans. I won't say who they are. You can read the book and find out who specifically you take on. What was the feedback from the critical community, if any? Well, I should start by saying the intent of the book is, is to reveal how personal finance and investment culture was really sold to people as a way around income stagnation and income inequality. So the idea was to show how we were told that if we, you know, saved this amount of money and we invested it this way, we would all be fine. And as we, of course, learned, it hasn't really turned out that way. And it hasn't turned out that way for a lot of reasons. Um, most important, of course, is that most people, their incomes are stagnant and, and or falling, while the cost of things like housing, health care, and education have gone up at rates well beyond inflation for about 20 to 30 years now. And people are in a real jam. And they turn to people like us for help. And frankly, a lot of the time, they really weren't getting it. They were just getting scolding lectures. And that's kind of where I started the book, was kind of looking at that. And what I was really trying to do was show how all of this stuff played into each other, 
how we were sold on this idea and how people were making money by selling us this idea. And so it was like a false bill of goods, right? Like you can save here and there, cut your gym membership and you can end up being a millionaire. Right. I mean, the example that always gets used and that I'm probably, you know, now best known for deconstructing is the idea of giving up your Starbucks latte. You know, the whole idea that you're going to give up, you know, your latte for five dollars a day, which, by the way, when this all first started, the latte wasn't five dollars a day. But we'll leave that aside for a second. And, you know, you'll put it, the money in every day and you'll invest it. And, you know, and, and in 30, 40 years, you'll be a millionaire, which ignored everything from taxes to inflation to the fact that most people couldn't afford to leave the money and not spend it at some point. You know, we tend to be unemployed. We tend to lose jobs. We have children. They need to go to college. People get sick. I mean, fill in the blank here. I mean, you know, what happens to Americans in the 21st century is all too often like some ghastly plague. Do you see this book having a part two? Uh, Has Do you feel like there's been any uh, change since your book has come out, maybe that you have influenced? Well, I should say, first, um, there I am co-writing right now with Harold Pollack at University of Chicago, um, a book of simple personal finance advice. Um, I wrote this book, I should say, and um, I know everybody, including you, thinks I was incredibly brave to write it. <laughs> um, I wrote it absolutely convinced um, nobody would ever in the personal finance or investment community speak to me again, um, and that I would never, ever be talking or speaking on this subject forevermore. This was going to be my final word, and I have no idea what I was going to do next, but I was going to get this off my chest and move on. <laughs> and anyway, all that, among other things, it accomplished, um, and we could talk about the other great stuff in a minute, was that apparently I'm now one of the most trusted people in personal finance. And people have actually studied this. My name turns up on lists. I find this hysterical. And The reason apparently is, is because at least people know I'm not selling them anything. Mm -hmm. I'm not profiting off of my advice. And I very clearly told them the truth as I saw it. So I say to people, the 401k doesn't work. And here's why. And they say, we get it. We believe you. But Helene, this is all I have right now. What should I do with it? I at least trust you to tell me what to do with it. And so, um, I am in that spirit, writing, co-writing a book of personal finance advice so that at least people feel that they can get some sustenance, for lack of a better word, um, you know, while um, we're all waiting for our retirement system to be reformed and actually work properly and better for everybody. So, so can you share? I'm, I am intrigued. I want this book. I want, a, I want an advanced copy, Helene. I want to know, personally, I want to know what else besides a 401k can get us to a rosy retirement? Well, I think the thing, main thing that would get people to a rosy retirement would be an expansion of the social security system, mm. um, which has been talked about fairly extensively by a lot of people, including Elizabeth Warren. Um, you know, we have a massive problem coming up. I don't think I need to tell you. Um, right. You know, a huge number of younger baby boomers, a majority and a majority of Gen Xers are really um, simply have not saved anywhere near enough money um, for retirement. And the chances of turning that situation around at this point are pretty slim. Um, Gen Xers are starting to turn 50 next year. So um, I know we all have this image of Gen Xers still hanging out in the coffee shop with Kurt Cobain somewhere. In the <laughs> that was 1990. As a society, I think we really need to take a look at it. Now, that's obviously not personal finance advice. 
What you can do, of course, is watch, you know, ask about a fiduciary standard, watch the fees and, you know, really keep track of what you're putting away and how it is being managed. Um, the amount of, you know, your retirement we lose to fees from the financial services industry is astronomical, um, hundreds of millions to billions of dollars altogether. You know, and for us individually, you know, it could be up to a third of our potential gain. It's a huge amount of money. Yeah, Tony Robbins' new book uh, attempts to deconstruct the 401k industry. And I read, is this true that you helped him with the book that he interviewed you? He did interview me and he's a charming, charming person. I haven't read his book, so I can't comment on it, unfortunately. Well, I'm really excited for your upcoming book. And um, who knew you could still, you know, you can take down the industry, but the industry still comes back and says, actually, we'd like to work with you and help to spread your advice, your contrarian advice, as it is now, because what we seem to have is just a lot of the same advice, right? And it's not working. So I'm really excited for your for your take. Right. Well, I mean, what I would say is because you asked to go back to the original question, you know, what has changed since the book came out? And I think you see a lot more acceptance of the idea that people aren't keeping up, not because they don't want to keep up, but because they can't keep up. And I think you're seeing a lot more acceptance of the idea that, you know, this idea that we can teach people about financial literacy in the schools and then they'll go off and save their 10 percent and be perfectly fine, which I, as you probably know, took apart in the book quite quite at length, mm-hmm. is absolute hogwash. And um, every time I see a negative financial literacy article now, I'm convinced I'm somehow behind it. Um, you know, and similarly, there's been much greater acceptance of the idea that women, there is not a lot of differences between men and women with about money, which was sort of this common mm-hmm. discussion before I wrote Pound Foolish, when in fact, there's very little differences. And most of the differences have to do with the fact that women live longer than men, right. they earn less money, they have more checkered careers and have to do more with less that they have. And I think you're seeing a lot greater acceptance of those ideas. And now how much of that is also because of the fact that we are talking a lot more about income inequality and salary stagnation and what the ultimate impact of that is, is probably huge as well. I don't want to overcredit my book, but I certainly think my book sort of hit the topic at the exact right time, um, which I consider to be a, you know, a really wonderful thing for, um, for the book, obviously, you know, you don't want to spend two years of your life writing something and then have to read it. With your follow-up book, I'm sure it will just continue to add to the important dialogue and conversation around, you know, what can we do to get people um, financially secure? Um, And I agree. It's sometimes it's, it's just an income problem, not just, but it is more than anything. It's an income problem. And I have done a lot of interviews with successful people, millionaires. And when I ask them about, you know, what their strategies are in terms of investing and this, like, we don't really have one. We just try to make as much money as we can. Right. And so there you go. Right. I would agree with that. I mean, it's really fascinating to me. You know, one of my golden rules in life is don't tell people to do stuff that you won't do yourself mm-hmm. um, is, is is really good, like advice, life advice generally. Um, 
you know, kids sort of pick that up instinctively, right? You know, you tell them, you know, I'll use an example, um, since I have a terrific, like a lot of people who worked in newsrooms, I have a terrific potty mouth. And, you know, I can let loose. And then, you know, my children will sometimes use certain words that perhaps they shouldn't. And uh, I will be, you can't say that. And they'll say, but you do, mommy. See? (laughs) Right, right, right. Um, Well, I want to turn this interview now into learning more about you, Helene. I think that um, you probably have a lot of rich stories to share when it comes to personal experiences with money and, you know, what makes you the sort of financially minded person that you are today. So something that I ask all of my guests is to start us off with kind of a mantra or philosophy, a bold statement that maybe unconsciously, subconsciously, you're you're living your life in alignment with this ideology, but you haven't really ever articulated it. So I want to hear it. Like if there is some financial philosophy that you have that you follow that helps you manage your money wisely. And look, we all make mistakes. I, you know, but in general, it keeps your money in check. What would it be? I don't know if it helps me manage my money, but you know, to me, the most important thing about money is that money is ultimately about freedom. And everybody has something different that they want from their money, right? But to me, it's always about having the freedom to, you know, ultimately to do what you want. Now, obviously, I don't have $100 billion. So no, I don't fully have freedom with my money. But it's certainly to me always the goal of money is so that you aren't trapped in situations you don't want to stay in or living in ways you don't want to live or working in jobs you don't want to be in. To me, that is always ultimately the goal of money. And I don't think you need a hundred billion million dollars. I think that you can have a lot less. Like Tony Robbins says in his book, like people, there's this misperception that you necessarily need like an, un, you know, a crazy amount of money to be financially free when actually if you do the math and you think about what your needs are and what you aspire to have, that it's actually a lot less, which isn't to say you shouldn't shoot for the stars, but you can make yourself a really a much more manageable financial goal and be quite happy. Right. But keep in mind, when they study millionaires and multimillionaires, no one ever has enough, right? Uh, They always think, and I'm not going to quote the study exactly, and now I'm regretting not looking it up before I spoke to you, but essentially, if you've got $5 million, you want $6 million. If you've got $10 million, you want $11 million. Um, And it's funny because long before the studies of this came out, I kind of instinctively understood this. And I used to tell people, I mean, I'm native to New York, so I always use New York examples that, you know, I guarantee you there is a billionaire who is looking at an apartment worth, you know, $25 million. And he's just annoyed that he can't afford the $26 million apartment. And that's how it is with money. And that's how most people think about it. Um, one wishes we didn't, but I, I have met very few people in my life who've ever seemed to get past that. I'm not a perfection in this world. I accept things as they are. Well, how did you get to have this mindset? Let's talk about money memories. I think a lot of us, the way that we perceive money today and how we lead our lives in terms just sort of philosophically our financial lives, you know, is often rooted in experiences just like anything else. Um, from childhood and on, what would be your biggest money memory that was really impactful in terms of shaping your mindset, um, good or bad? Oh, I don't know if it 
shaped it. But I was thinking about this. And the thing I always remember very early was that, um, you know, my dad was going through a spell of unemployment. And I was writing, I think, a pen pal letter with a friend of mine. And I gave her a stamp. And by the way, this was in the early 70s. So stamps were about eight cents each, if I'm remembering this right. I should really go look this up, right? (laughs) It was 1973, okay? So I think stamps were eight cents each. And my mother found out I gave my friend a stamp and she flipped out. I mean, I still think she might've been overreacting slightly. I, I don't think we were quite that destitute. But, you know, it taught me how on the edge people can feel about money mm. and how what is nothing to one person can seem like the world to another. Um, and that, you know, I would say what I've taken from it to this day and it's something that is very easy to forget in certain circles. And especially when you're writing about money, you tend to be talking to a lot of rich people a lot of the time is that most people don't have very much at all. You know, half of Americans have less than $12,000 saved. Never forget that. Right. And more than half of us are living paycheck to paycheck. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And um, I could even remember that more often than I do. I think we I all think- could. I think every last one of us could. Yeah. What about failure, Helene? I mean, they say that success is uh, the byproduct of failure sometimes. And um, when it comes to money, we all make mistakes, big and small. And no matter, it happens to the best of us sometimes, whether it's we trust the wrong person or we um, forget to pay a bill or we took out a loan that was much bigger than we could really take on. What was a failure in your personal life, financial failure? What happened and what did you learn? What did I learn? Okay. Um, In 97 or 98, people talked to me about both AOL and Amazon. (laughs) And guess which one I bought? (laughs) Um, Oh, AOL. (laughs) Needless to say, I do not buy individual (laughs) stocks anymore. I assume I have a black thumb. I will make the wrong decision every time. I mean, I guess you could say I learned from it, right? I don't time the market. I don't do anything like that anymore. I just put my money in my index funds and I sort of go on with my life, right? Right. right. But that's why, basically, right? And by the way, I was writing Money Makeover at the time for the LA Times. So I really should have known better, okay? But everybody believed it was the dot-com boom. Even if you thought you were cynical about it, like me, everybody wanted to believe. Well, yeah. if you had, so did you sell that stock after the crash or what? Did you just. At some point, I don't even remember when I unloaded it, to be real honest. <laughs> i tell you, it is not in my portfolio any longer. Um, you know, investing is something that I get asked about a lot. And I'm like, look, I'm not an expert in investing. Um, and I get this question a lot from young adults uh, just recently I was talking in front of an audience and a wom- a woman who was, you know, a professional making money, young, young adult was like, I really want to get in the stock market. How do I do it? And I think people forget that like instruments like IRAs and mutual funds, I mean, you can still be in the market. You just 
but buying a share of shares of a company, it's so speculative. It's so risky. You might do okay, but right. you won't do as well as putting money in an index fund. You know, the, the, the studies are the studies are the studies. And we know that about 1% of people, and those people include people managing mutual funds, you know, have a, you know, have we, about 1% have an ability to beat the market year in and year out. It's, I think the last study that came out was actually point, um, point six, uh, six tenths of 1%. Um, it, it's really astonishing, but you know, there's a whole industry that mm-hmm. is profiting by telling people they can do it. And unfortunately, you know, major brokerages, major banks are implicated in this. Um, you know, you even fidelity, which seems so wonderful, you know, runs options trading classes for people. You know, this is a terrible idea, by the way. Don't do it. Don't try this to help people. Uh, it's a really good way to lose money. And it's just, but that's how they make money. They don't make that much money from an index fund that they're charging, you know, two tenths of 1% a year to manage. Right. So if the big money comes from people who trade a lot and from people who just put their money and manage mutual funds and are paying 1%, 1.5% year in and year out and don't even know what's going on. Let's talk about something a little more positive. Your so money moment, Helene. This is an opportunity for you to share something that you're really proud of uh, when it comes to personal finance in your life, um, whether it was a, a raise that you negotiated or um, it could have been your book deal that you negotiated. It could have been just something that I think defines financial success for you in your life. Oh, this is easy. Yeah. I know. Always- Really proud of my wedding. Um, I am married. Once, once you're married more than 20 years, by the way, you start losing track. It's really scary. I'm married 23 years. It'll be 24 um, this August. Congratulations. And thank you. Um, it's kind of crazy, right? Um, I, I joke I had a starter marriage that never ended. But I... Um, I, uh, we were getting, we were looking at venues, you know, because you always have these fantasies for this big wedding, right? right? And we're looking at all these different places. And we picked out a place and we were about to put a deposit down. It was this really cool place in the West Village, by the way. I have no idea if it's still there or not. And I, I couldn't get a straight price on the cost of the liquor. And by the way, this is long before I was writing about finances for a living, right? And it was making me crazy that I couldn't get a straight price on what this was going to cost me. And then my mother starts lobbying for another place that she wanted that my husband didn't like my future, then future husband. And in the middle of all this, a friend of ours just called us up and said, he was living, our, this is my husband's, um, one of his professors from college was living in a beach house overlooking Laguna Beach in California. And he said, you know, I just had a friend get married in my living room last week and on the porch overlooking the ocean. And, you know, why don't you just do that and just forget about this whole big wedding thing? And we looked at each other and thought, you know, that's a great idea. And so we did. And so we had about 20 people at our wedding and we bought flowers from some guy who was selling them on the corner of um, the main street in Laguna Beach. And I rented a canopy at a party party place and we got a caterer and that was it. I I probably spent, I don't know, thousand dollars maybe at most of the airfare. It was amazing and fun and wonderful. And it was a real lesson, by the way, and not falling 
you know, we have this whole idea now with weddings and how big they should be. And it's like this whole wedding industrial complex. I don't have to tell you probably. Oh, I recently got married and I didn't spend a thousand dollars. I spent I mean, a lot more. I joke that when I got married, a destination wedding was called an elopement. You didn't expect right, your friends right, right. to come, right? Well, and we're seeing now marriage, we, I've seen headlines and I've read articles that, you know, marriage is now just for the wealthy. And there are obviously there's like, it's a, it's a deeper story about kind of the economic implications of getting married and like taxes and things like that. And, but I also think that the whole wedding thing stresses people out to the point where they're like, let's just live together. I have friends like that, you know, who are just, they're, they're sad because they can't have the real wedding. I find it kind of unreal. I mean, yeah. because of course, for two points, first, obviously the wedding really isn't that important. It's, it's one what day. comes afterwards, right? Right. Okay. You're not, as I say, you're not getting weddinged, you're getting married. Right. Oh, that's a good way. I'm going to remember that. Yeah. And I will credit you. Okay? No, go ahead. I, it's I, yours. It's all yours, Helene. Whenever somebody approaches me about a wedding, because <laughs> I'm still, I mean, I'm really proud of this. You have no idea. But second, you know, we kind of live in this, you know, sort of turbo capitalist culture at this point that teaches us that unless we spend a lot of money on something, it isn't really valid. And that's obviously not true, but it's so ingrained and it's so part of the culture. Even people who think they don't buy into it kind of buy into it. You know, you, oh, people still ask me every so often when they hear the story of my wedding. Well, did it work out? And I'm kind of like, well, it's been 20, it'll be 24 years this year. And we have two kids and a dog and we've moved several times. And, you know, we've been through a lot together. And I guess it must have worked out, right? But right. It's, it's not a precursor to horrible things if you don't break the bank on your on your wedding. Right. It's, it, it's really, but I think we do. We do. No matter how much we want to say, oh, I'm not going to spend money on this or that, or I don't value this or that, it, we live in a culture that does. And I think that's a very, very hard thing to buck on the, on, in the end. I agree. I agree. I mean, just watch Bravo. <laughs> and right. you, just, you, you can sense what our culture, unfortunately, values, at least the, the television watching culture. Right. And I mean, it's one of the points I make in, in Pound Foolish and elsewhere is that it's actually in a whole way kind of cruel to tell people, oh, give up your latte or you don't have enough money for a smartphone. Because in our society, those are signals that you belong. And, you know, the people telling people to give this stuff up, by the way, inevitably don't seem to have a problem affording it. There seems to be a lack of shame about that sort of thing, too. Um, but you know, it's really kind of these powerful signifiers of who you are. And it's just, you know, it's a lot easier to give up a latte, frankly, if you have the money to give up the latte, whereas if you really can't afford it, it's something else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of latte, uh, sort of, Helene, what is something that you consider like a habit, a financial habit of yours whether it's daily, it could be sporadic, but it is a habit. I think good good behavior um, comes down to having some habits in place. Um, getting results means having some habits in place. What are what is one conscious habit that you participate in that you do, whether it's again daily or irregularly, but yet does help you keep your money well protected and in check? Wow. I have a 15-year-old and 11-year-old boys. I, I play financial whack-a-mole. 
<laughs> no, you can't have this. No, you can't have that. Protect it. Um, let me make that real clear here. Um, I keep, um, you're going to laugh. I actually still, even though I have everything on an online thing, you know, or, you know, I also keep paper ledgers and I find that I really keep better track of, um, what's going in and out, not my investment stuff, obviously that would be kind of insane, but the, in terms of my checkbook, I still keep the main, the main focus of it on paper. And I find there's just something with that hand-eye cord connection. And, and of course, you know, behaviorals would back me up on this, that you, I really track what's going in and out a lot better that way. So do you literally Uh balance a checkbook? Oh yeah. Wow. And uh, usually how it happens, by the way, is if you look at my checkbook, it actually says at the moment, I have $600 more than the, the, it's uh, they claim I have $600 more than I think I have because it never really fully balances. It <laughs> right, right, right. You know, but yeah, I make a mistake and it's there to like cover me um, because I do have this terrible habit of balancing it at two in the morning, which is really not like the, the time of day. My math skills are at 100 percent. So um, so little mistakes do creep in, but I, I find it to be um, a ritual. I mean, if you would ask me, I think it's so powerful. People ask me like the one financial thing they could do that would help them. And I should stress really that I don't do it myself, but the less plastic you use, the better. Now you can pay with your iPhone. I know my, my dad, who is a, he loves technology. He's first in line at Apple. He is now paying with his iPhone wherever possible. He thinks it's the coolest thing. And for me, I just cringe, you know, it's like, I get it. He's like, it's super safe. You know, you have to, you can, you can only unlock it with your fingerprint. And the receipt that you get from the store doesn't even have the real last four digits of your credit card. And they make something up. So it's really encrypted. No one can ever, I'm like, yeah, but I get that part. But sort of behaviorally speaking, this is making us more disconnected to our finances. I think it's just making making transactions a lot easier and a lot more mindless. And I completely agree. I, I won't use it. I mean, yeah. I'm sure I'll break down eventually, <laughs> but I mean, as of right now, I will not do it at all. I'm like, you know, there's nothing really wrong with plastic. Um, you know, as I said, I mean, I'm sort of a hypocrite on the, on the issue because I do use credit cards. I mean, and probably too much, like almost all of us. But well, it's unrealistic it, to walk around with wads of cash these days. I mean, it's just not safe to do that. I, but yeah, from a kind of you know philosophical behavioral standpoint, I I prefer paper to to, to, to plastic. But what are you gonna do? Uh, that's how I feel. What are you going to do? All right. This I is in the United States. What am I going to do? <laughs> I mean, I am American. I, you know, I thought I live in our culture. I get it. Like, right. you, know. you want to online shop, you know, you can't. Right. right. So this is the last part of the interview, which is um, hopefully f- going to be a fun experience for you and me. Um, but it's like a round robin of quick questions. Say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Mm-hmm. If I won the lottery tomorrow, say $100 million, I would. I don't know. My husband claims he would immediately hire a cook, um, which I just told you, by the way, I'm a really bad cook, right? And that we'd never have to cook again. That's my hus- what my husband wants to do. I think I would travel a lot and uh, probably finally indulge my wish of being bi-coastal. Oh, which LA or San Fran or LA? LA. Yep. The biggest, oh wait. 
The one thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is too much restaurants, mm. too much eating out. Yes, answer. My biggest guilty pleasure that I spend a lot on is food and clothes. I love clothes. Now, when you donate money, uh, who do you like? What charities do you like to give to? How do you like to donate and why? Um, I should be much more focused about this because you really should give to only one or give as much as you can to one or two charities so that you make the biggest impact. But what I've, I've found in the past several years, because so many people are in such dire straits and because there's so much, so many things that are now fundraised that used to just be taken care of, I find I'm often giving money in like, you know, ways that are just, oh, you know, one of my um, one of my son's nursery school teachers um, was foreclosed on this year and needed money to move. I ended up giving money to her Kickstarter campaign for that. Finally, Helene, I'm so money because oh, I don't know. I have <laughs> no idea. Everybody thinks I'm a money expert. I totally get how it interacts with us in society. That's that's obviously it. I mean. I see the money trail through everything. I, I get it with the kids. I got it with the kids' classes. I get it with the upscaling of premium dog foods. You can tell I'm looking at my poodle as I said that. Um, I just kind of get it. I don't know why. I always did. I just have always been that way. Just makes total sense to me. Well, I appreciate the time you're spending with us. So thank you so much, Helene. Thank you. Now, if you'd like to learn more about Helene, please visit her website, HelaneOlin.com. You can also follow her on Twitter at Helene Olin. Also, her book is Pound Foolish, Exposing the Dark Side of the Personal Finance Industry. We, of course, have all the links to find Helene at SoMoneyPodcast.com. And there you can also find the full transcript from this interview and the comments. As always, I want to hear from you. Please continue to send me your questions. If you've already sent me a question and I've answered it, it doesn't mean you can't keep asking me questions. Saturdays and Sundays are for us, you and me time. We're going to connect over money. What's on your money mind? Uh, Ask away. There's no wrong question. Just go to somoneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh, and ask away. And just as a reminder, if you love what you're hearing and you want the podcast to continue, please spend a minute or two to leave your review on iTunes. It is the most effective way to support the show, to avoid it from falling into obscurity. Good reviews, as I've said, give you great placement in the iTunes store, which is sometimes the difference between being found and getting buried. And every Saturday on the podcast, as a thank you, I select one new review from the week, and that person who left the review gets a free 15-minute money blitz with me to talk about whatever's on their money mind. So let me know when you leave the review. Email me, farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com so that I can enter you into the drawing. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Hope your day is so money.